Amen. Praise the Lord. Good morning, ARC. Good morning, ARC. I'm happy to be here to worship with you and open up God's word. If you all need a Bible, if you would raise your hand. Um, I know the usher has a few copies. I see a few here in the middle. You can pass out some of those Bibles. Um, thank you, praise and worship. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, greeters, um, for just setting the stage to make it easy for a brother to preach God's word this morning. So as the Bibles are being handed out, let me pray and we will look into God's word. Father God, we do thank you. Indeed, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And God, when I consider the heavens and all that you made, what is man? And as we gather now, God, we pray that you would indeed open our eyes, that we may behold the marvelous truths here in your word, and that you would give us ears of faith, Lord, to hear and to do, and that you would give us a heart to have deep affection and love for Christ. God, we thank you by faith for what you will do, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. So ARC, family of God, I have one question for you this morning. Are you enjoying God in prayer? Are you enjoying your relationship with the Lord? Last week, Richard spoke about the Father's joy in us, but do you find joy in him? Speaking and listening is the bedrock of any solid relationship, including our relationship with the Lord. Think about a healthy marriage. You need to talk and you need to listen to your spouse. Try going a month or a week without talking to your spouse. In fact, don't try that at home because that leads to nothing but trouble. But there's levels to speaking and levels to listening. And raising four kids, I realized there's a difference between hearing what I said and actually listening to what I said. And all the parents said, amen. I've learned to speak to them and then ask them to repeat what I said to ensure that they really got it, that they really got it. And that's for their good and that's for their joy and for our sanity. But in the same way, our loving father wants us to repeat, to ponder to meditate on what he has spoken to us in his word. And that's really for our good and our joy. And God, God speaks through the skies that he created. God speaks through the scripture that he's given, both in general revelation and in special revelation, God speaks. And he declares that we listen. He desires that we hear him and that we learn from him and that we love him. It's simple yet profound for enjoying our time with God. It's for us to meditate and to pray to him. Now, let me say up front that most people associate meditation with transcendental meditation, the emptying of your mind, but biblical meditation is not that. It's not about emptying your mind, but it's filling your mind. It's filling your heart. It's filling your soul and pondering on God's truth about who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. God speaks, and he speaks in ways that reveal both his glory and his grace. And let me say this, there are no two things that should arrest the attention of the Christian, both their heart and their mind, more than God's glory and God's grace. And David, a man after God's own heart, he takes a highlighter to focus our attention on answering the question for us, can we really enjoy God in prayer? And David in Psalm 19, which is really a prayer, 
David models this joy that he has in God. So let's take a look together at God's word in Psalm 19. To the choir master, Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from his heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is God's word. And from this text, we see three things in David's example of enjoying God in prayer. In verse 1 through 6, meditating on God's glory. In verse 7 through 11, meditating on God's grace. And verse 12 to 14 is our response. Humble and joyful prayer. The first thing we learn from David in enjoying our prayer life is to meditate on God's glory. In verse 1 and 2, God preaches his glory through the skies above. He says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We know in Isaiah 6, 3 and elsewhere throughout the Bible, the whole earth is actually full of God's glory. And here we see that the heavens are too. To declare his glory means the whole of creation exalts the weightiness, the greatness, the majesty, the splendor of the creator. Enjoying God starts with praying with your eyes open. Look up and rejoice with the heavenly choir of God's goodness. And truth be told, we do this all the time, but we do it on lesser things. You ever watch kids after watching a new Spider-Man movie, which was okay, not that great, they big up the director. Adults, they do it as well. They do it with their gadgets and cars and careers, giving glory and praise to lesser things. How much more should we praise our God? It's like the skies are saying, redirect your attention. Look at our creator. This is who he is. And when you look up at the earth's atmosphere, you see his beauty. You see his brilliance and creativity, the colors of the rainbow. Y'all seen that rainbow on Friday? That was amazing. When you look up at the shape of the clouds and every young boy and young girl has looked up at the clouds and tried to imagine what animal it represents. Even in this, this is God's gentle nudging to get us to look up. But there's more. 
When you look beyond the atmosphere into outer space, you see stars and planets and Milky Ways, solar systems and galaxies. I love the song that we just sang when it says about God, when you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are formed. But there's more. Beyond outer space, the Apostle Paul describes a time when he was caught up in the third heaven. And you can see this in 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 2 to 4. And he calls it the place where God dwells. And there he said he heard inexpressible things that no one can even utter. Our God is a wonder. He is a glorious wonder. And it's interesting because David didn't have a telescope or a copy of the New Testament with Paul's testimony. But what he did know was Genesis 1, that in the beginning, God spoke the heavens into existence and they have not stopped speaking of his greatness ever since. I recently spoke with Pastor Tunde and he uh, explained to me that on a visit that he had in Benin, Africa, several years ago, that he drove and he saw some amazing trees. You remember that story you was telling me? And he said the trees look like as though they were clapping and praising God in heaven. You know, that imagery never left my mind. I've been thinking about that ever since. Those trees were doing what they were created to do, praising God and pointing to its creator. And when people see creation, they should say, wow, look at our God. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you found yourself doing that? Just looking up and being in awe of God. Psalm 145, verse 5 and 6 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Meditation leads to proclamation. A heart warmed of God's glory can't help but speak of God's greatness. Jesus said, Out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Look up and be mesmerized by God. But what if you don't feel like praising God? I heard Pastor Tim before he prayed talked about that, that the everyday things of life just get to us. And John Piper has an excellent book called When I Don't Desire God, which is a popular book for a reason. Because brothers and sisters, when it comes to having a dull heart towards the things of God, we have all been there. And some of you may be there even now. Some of you may have had long, dry seasons asking God, where are you? We can't sense his presence. How can I declare his greatness? But may I suggest to you that it first starts with a sacrifice of praise. And this is not to say that there is no place for lament, but even in lament, our expressions of pain is with hope pointing to someone greater than our situation. And life can come at us like a flood. A bad doctor's report, a rebellious child, a wayward spouse can be extremely difficult but if we only praise God based on positive circumstances, some of us would rarely, if ever, praise our God. And this is why I was so encouraged by Sister Martha's recent email. Despite facing hard news, her email to the church family was full of hope. It was full of praise. It was full of thanksgiving. I saw words in her email that said, I am overwhelmed with love today. I am thankful to my God. And then it got real good to her. She said, God gives entry into places to show his graces. I said, go ahead, Miss Parker. She is an encouragement to the church family. And it doesn't mean that hardships, afflictions, and difficulties won't come. 
But what it does mean is that he is still worthy to be praised. He's worthy of a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips openly profess his name. There's no longer any sacrifices for atonement. The only sacrifices that remain now are sacrifices of praise through our life, Romans 12, and through the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, to the one who redeemed us and cares for us. We just considered the care in which he created the universe and setting it in order. We can catch a glimpse of the same care that he has for each and every one of us. Look up and marvel at his care for you. His eyes are on the sparrow. His eyes are on Miss Martha and his eyes are on you. So by way of application, take time this week and simply look up and pray with your eyes open. Whether that's a walk outside, a jog in the park, sitting on a porch, the stroller and the baby on a bike ride, enjoy the day. But don't forget to meditate on what God has created. And let that lead you to a simple prayer of praise to God, even if it's a sacrifice of praise as you enjoy God in prayer. Verse three to four, we see God's unheard voice is heard by all. See there in verse three and four, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. Every man, every woman in every part of the world is without excuse concerning the existence of God. They hear him speaking, but the issue is they suppress the truth. This is God's general revelation of himself. And this is important to understand for our friends who may not be Christians here today, that you are still called to consider. You are still called to meditate on God's creation, too. The reality of the skies proclaiming God's glory is not an argument or a debate, but an encouragement for you to look up and to humble yourself. Not only do the heavens serve as a praise leader for the Christian, but the heavens serve as an apologist for the atheist. The problem is that apologetics don't save. Only Jesus saves. In Romans 1.20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. General revelation just shows there is a God who you have to give an account to. And on the day of judgment, there will be no excuse. There's no excuse that a basic understanding of God's existence can be gained just by looking at the natural world. And what scripture is not saying is the idea that nature is an extension of God. No, that's pantheism. But what scripture is saying is nation, nature is an expression of God. His eternal power and divine nature can be seen. So take, for example, the sun. You see there in verse 5 and 6, it reveals the omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience of God. David's enjoyment of God overflows as he meditates on the sun. He uses these incredible word pictures to try to explain the unexplainable. He says that he has set a tent for the sun. In verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. 
Verse 6, it's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is amazing imagery. The scripture says it's like the best dressed bridegroom. And in this culture, the bride gets all the attention. But in David's culture, the man would have an entourage who would be attending to his appearance as well. And when he would finally appear out of his chamber, he would command attention. And in the same way, David is saying, picture the sunrise in the morning on a clear day or a sunset with all its colors over a mountain. The sun is like a strong man rising and setting, setting like a champion, like Usain Bolt, who speeds across the finish line with joy, grace and strength. Day and night, night and day, over and over again, since the beginning of time, this has been taking place. What a picture of God's faithfulness. Well, think about a five-year-old who paints a picture. The sun is typically a big yellow ball with bright rays that's larger than life with a big smile on its face. It's large. It's huge. And a simple picture reveals the beauty and the power of the sun. And even that is meant to communicate something, that there's someone greater than itself. Verse 6 says there's nothing hidden from its heat. And if the sun has that kind of reach and that kind of power, how much more the God who created it? The sun is just a glimpse of God's omnipresence. He's present in all time. He's present in all space. There's nowhere in the universe that lies outside of God's knowledge and care. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said that this is the fundamental thing. The most serious thing of all, that we are always in the presence of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 33, verse 13 and 14, that the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out at all the inhabitants of the earth. God does sit high and he looks low and nothing escapes his sight. And brothers and sisters, meditate on that. Meditate on the nearness of God. He is transcendent and imminent all at the same time. And our communion with him can be enjoyed anywhere and everywhere. Wherever you are, God is there. He's omnipotent. The sun in the sky may have power, but it's limited. But God's power is all powerful. It's infinite and unlimited. We see this especially in creation where God said, let there be. And it was. He spoke by the power of his word and everything was created from nothing. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. That's power. If you boil omnipotent down to just three words, it would be God is able. He's able to do any and everything. And this is hugely important and helpful when you're thinking about going to God in prayer. Today, be reminded of that, that God is able. Able. And lastly, with the sun, it's 93 million miles from Earth, which is the perfect distance for life on this planet. And if the sun was just 10 percent closer, we would burn up. If it was 10 percent further away, we would freeze to death. And this is by God's intelligent design. God is omniscient. He's all knowing. He knows all things past, present and future, real and potential. He knows all things at the same time time. This is our God. In Psalm 147 verse 5, 
It says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Family, our God is never too busy to hear what his children are saying. He is never too busy to know what we are thinking. God's omniscience should be a comfort to us. He hears our prayers. And not only does he hear, he always knows the best answer. Even knowing our needs before we ask, meditate on that reality. The skies declare God's glory. And here we see that the scriptures declare his grace. So the second thing we learn from David in enjoying our prayer life is to meditate on God's grace in the scriptures. See verse 7 through 11. Someone has once written that the word grace is probably the greatest word in all of the scripture, even more than love. Why? Because grace is love in action. It is the unmerited love, unmerited favor, and the kindness of God towards us. So verse 7 and 9 gives examples of that grace. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So when we see the words law and testimony, precepts and commandments, these are all referring to what God has spoken in the scriptures. And it's a fascinating thing to see what the scripture has to say about scripture. And here we see at least two things. We see what it is and we see what it does. Verse 789, we see what it is. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's true. It's righteous. It's holy. It's eternal. These are the objective rock solid truths that we should be thinking on every time that we approach our Bibles. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is the word of the living God. The New Testament affirms this in Philippians 4.8, that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, anything worthy of praise, Meditate, think, ponder these things. That's the definition of meditation. Filling your mind, filling your heart, filling your soul with God's truth about who he is and how he has revealed himself. So the question for you is how do you approach scripture? Is it a checklist to say that I've done my religious duty for the day or for the week? Do you find yourself bored or distracted by God's word? We approach it like Hebrews 4.12 says that it is. The living, active, sharp, two-edged sword that pierces, divides, discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is what it is. And really, when you think about the spiritual discipline of meditation, it's a forgotten thing. And it's really to our detriment. When we look at John, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, and Psalm verse 1, 1 to 2, it states that is the key to spiritual success is to meditate on God's word day and night. But besides that, there may come a time when the only word that you have is the word that you have stored in your heart. And that could be whether from severe persecution or whether if you're in a prison overseas or a nursing home down the block, you will need to have God's word stored in your heart. I recall visiting some friends in a nursing home a couple of years ago, 
And what I observed with them was having, they had a hard time remembering the previous conversation that we had just had. But when reading the word, when singing the word with them, they could recite God's promises and the lyrics to hymns like they were literally reading it from a book. They could enjoy their prayer life and ultimately enjoy their relationship with God because they had stored the word in their hearts. God's word is the grace gift that keeps on giving. That's what it is and how it gets there and how it stays there is through meditation. Here in verse 7 and 8, we see what it does. It's soul food. It revives the dull heart and it's able to convert the dead heart. It revives our soul. And you can recall your own testimony as a witness to that power. In 2002, I was in the military. And as an airman, I found myself in Kandahar, Afghanistan, far from home, far from family, and far from God. But then I met some soldiers that was in the same predicament that I was in, but they had a different outlook. It was something about them that was different. They had a joy and they had a peace that I just could not understand. And I began to ask them the reason for their hope. And they shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ dying for sinners like me, and that he loved me, that he loved me. I was rocked by that. And I began to study the Bible with these faithful brothers and sisters, and I found myself unable to shake this Jesus unable to shake God's word. It had revived my soul. And I know many of you have a similar testimony and praise God, the word does the work. So family, be encouraged that what God can do for one, he can do for another. Indeed, keep praying for that son and that daughter, that grandchild, praying for your neighbors and your coworkers. Continue to share the word of God with them. It does not go out void does not return void. It also makes the simple wise. In Psalm 119, verse 99, the psalmist says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. By God's grace, his word brings us joy in our heart. It enlightens our eyes. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Only his special revelation, his God-breathed word can do that. So we see in verse 7 and 9, they were examples of God's grace. Verse 10 and 11, we see the experience of God's grace. David says, here is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. David desired the treasure of God's word even more than gold. He had tasted and he had seen and he had judged for himself the sweetness of God's word. And he found the light in God through his word. And in that way, meditation is really just a means to an end, to enjoying God. Meditation is a means to an end, to enjoying God. George Mueller, in 1841, he had a similar testimony. Uh, this was a man who operated an orphanage solely on prayer and faith. And he made a discovery between meditation and prayer that transformed his life for the rest of his life. He said, and I quote, I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditation. Yet it turned almost immediately more or less to prayer. 
He goes on to say, for my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into experimental fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend that which he brought before me in his precious word. I speak to my father and my friend. And that's hard for the 21st century ears because more and more of us are living in the fast lane. It's hard for uh, us to settle down and to really hear and to meditate on God's word. I once heard a preacher say, you can't be holy in a hurry. And I agree with him. We have to have a crock pot understanding of our faith. And I love when my wife cooks with the crock pot. It's something about savoring the smell, simmering of the meat, potatoes. I know it's dangerous here right before lunch. But the smell all day, you can almost taste the food through the aroma. And tasting and seeing that the Lord is good takes time in his presence and in his word. If you're a busy college student, caregiver, I'm a homeschooler of a little ones, I want to suggest to you that if you can't go wide, go deep. And what I mean by that is some reading plans usually require at least four chapters a day, and that's great for a big picture, a big overview of the Bible. But there are times where you just need, you need to sit and you need to soak on just a few verses. And that's all right. The beauty about this is whether you stand in line at a supermarket, you walk your dog, or if you're laying down and taking a nap, you can reflect on bite-sized portions of God's word throughout the day. And here's some help in order to do that. I want to give you three Ps in order to help you out as you think about meditating on God's word. Number one, you want to ponder it. It means just thinking about it over and over, reading it, memorizing it, thinking throughout the day, repeating it to yourself. What does the text mean? What do the individual words themselves mean? How is God expressing himself in this passage? So ponder it. Then number two, personalize it. What does this book look like in your own life? What actions need to happen for the truth to become a reality? Then number three, pray over it. Ask God to make that truth real and to reveal how you should respond. And again, the definition of meditation is filling your mind, filling your heart, filling your soul with God's truth about who he is and how he revealed himself in scripture. But it should actually be three P's and an O, with the last O being obedience. See there in verse 11, obedience to the Lord. He says, moreover by them, referring to the word, is your servant warned and keeping them is great reward. And obedience to God's word is a great reward. We don't just want to be hearers, but doers of God's word. And if after meditation, there is no application into your life, then you've missed the point of putting into action what God has said. The scripture calls that obedience is great reward. So as a result of meditating on God's glory in the skies and God's grace in the scriptures, we not only see God more fully, but we see ourselves more clearly. The third thing we learn from David in enjoying our prayer life is responding to God in humble and joyful prayer. See there in verse 12 to 14. It says, verse 12 and 13 is a plea for cleansing and a plea for restraint. It says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This psalm was most likely written near the end of David's life, and 
just to put this in perspective, this was probably after his sin with Bathsheba and after penning Psalm 51. So when he writes verse 12 and 13, these are the words of a man who knows his desperate need for God's cleansing and for God's restraint. David is saying here that sin comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And there are sins that we stumble into and there are others that we run into. And sins we think we conceal but are not hidden from God. And high-handed sin that we parade before others, all of them are a stench to the Lord. So David prays a prayer confession. To confess sin is simply admitting and agreeing, admitting what we did and agreeing with God that our actions or words were wrong and not pleasing in his sight. And here David asked God, from secret sins cleanse me and from deliberate high-handed sins spare me. Let them not prevail over me. What I want you to take note of here is that confession of sin is not just for unbelievers but it's for believers as well. You may ask, why do I need to confess my sin if we've already been forgiven in Christ? It's a great question. For the Christian, positionally, we are forgiven. The price has been paid by Christ. At the cross, he has satisfied God's wrath against sin and no longer is there a sacrifice necessary. When Jesus said that it's finished, it is finished. He meant it. Our positional forgiveness was obtained once and for all at the cross. That's good news. But relationally, we need to confess. Joyful fellowship with God cannot happen without unconfessed sin, with unconfessed sin in our life. Let me say that again. Joyful fellowship with God cannot happen with unconfessed sin in our lives. And this is the motivation for David. He's like, God, I love our relationship so much that I don't want anything to get in the way. In Psalm 32, verse 3 and 5, David recognizes the hindrance of unconfessed sin, the hindrance of joy and fellowship with the Lord. He he says there in verse uh, 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Is that your same motivation today? Have you felt the heaviness from the weight of your sin? Do you desire both cleansing and restraint? In that way, confession really is good for the soul. God wants us to live in a, with a clear conscience and a pure heart in order to enjoy fellowship with him. That is probably our biggest hindrance in enjoying God in prayer. And if the spirit brings conviction, you shouldn't hesitate to confess sin before the Lord. Even now, you can make David's prayer your prayer in that way. And asking the Lord to forgive your hidden faults as well as your willful sins. You can ask the Lord to help you and to guard your heart. To help you to enjoy fellowship with him with a clear conscience and a pure heart. Make that your prayer, even this morning. And in verse 13, verse 12 and 13, we see a humble confession that leads to joy. And then lastly, in verse 14, we see a humble request. Verse 14, David's prayer is grounded in knowing God. 
He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a powerful prayer that only comes from much reflection. And he's saying what I've just meditated on internally, I desire to match with my words externally. And throughout the book of Leviticus, in which we just studied, when a worshiper brought an animal to the sanctuary to be sacrificed to the Lord, it had to be free from blemishes. If a blemish was found, neither the animal nor the worshiper was accepted by the Lord because God is holy. And David recognized that there are certain offerings that are not pleasing to God, whether the words of his mouth, the deeds of his hand, or even the thoughts of his mind are enough to condemn us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, it tells us that on a day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that we speak. There are occasions that some of you may or may not relate to that after you have spent time with the Lord in prayer and somewhere between getting off your knees and when that car cuts you off on the highway, the words of your mouth did not match the meditations of your heart. And David, like all of us, need help need help to accomplish this. And here David uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to remind himself that God has a role and he has in his promise to keep with us. Rock, he uses to describe God's role in the relationship with his people. It represents God as being steadfast and safe and secure, our refuge and ever-present help. He is our rock. He also uses Redeemer to describe God's role in his relationship with his people. It represents deliverance from all forms of evil. These are two beautiful descriptive words to describe the relationship between God and his people Israel. But these descriptions are mere shadows that find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The full revelation of God, as was read earlier by our sister Hannah, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The sun, the moon, the stars were created by Jesus, through Jesus and for Jesus. He is the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the creator and sustainer of all creation. Jesus is the rock. And Jesus is our rock, provides both wonderful news and a warning. The same rock that provides safety and security is the same rock that in the New Testament, many stumble over in unbelief. And today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Turn to Jesus. He is our redeemer. And as a redeemer, he is fully man and he obeyed God's law perfectly on our behalf and died in our place for our sin. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, God haters, blasphemers didn't think about God. He died for us. But Jesus is also fully God. He bore the righteous anger of the father and overcame death, rising on the third day. And that's the good news of the gospel that Christ defeated sin, death, and the grave on our behalf. And now he commands every person everywhere to repent and to believe. Jesus is the only means by which we can truly have a relationship and enjoy God. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us whose glory 
has been seen, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In conclusion, can we enjoy our prayer life with God? The answer is yes, we can. And yes, we should. By posturing our hearts in such a way that we are blown away by meditating on his glory in the skies, blown away by meditating on his grace in the scriptures, looking to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of both God's glory and God's grace. And out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks to God in a way that is pleasing to him and that is a joy to us. And there's a um, hymn that goes, uh, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I almost set it up just like I was going to sing it. Um, it goes like this. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hand has made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. And when I think that God his Son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And the last one he says, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and proclaim, my God, how great thou art. This is from someone who meditated deeply on God's world, on God's promises in his word, and his soul could not help but find joy in God and in his greatness. ARC, may that be our testimony. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do say how great you are. We thank you, God, for your word. Through it, Lord, we have come to know you, that you are the one who is full of glory and full of grace. Oh God, even as we think about blessing the block, hitting the block, neighboring, preaching, teaching, serving, all of these various things, God, may we not forget our first love. May we not be distracted by many things, but choose the better thing that will not be taken from us. To sit at your feet, to listen intently, to meditate on you. Stir our affections, O oh God, to see that in the world you have created, you are glorified. The word that you have given, there is grace. And in your son, Jesus Christ, God, bring revival to ARC, both personally to each member and publicly to our neighbors and throughout the nations. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation in my heart, be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.